0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble!
2: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Oliver and I go inside the huddle with Joachim Schomberger, director of opera at Northwestern University's Bienen School of Music, and he's the director and video editor of the web series Orfeo Remote. But first, friend of the show, Zachary James, posted a wake-up call on social media saying, quote, let's immediately stop doing business like we are still in the old world. It's a new world with new challenges and more unknowns than knowns. We take his advice to heart and talk business about the future of opera at the beginning of 2021, plus two-minute drill, all your opera headlines from the past week. Dr. Fauci predicts the return of theater this fall, but he said nothing about opera. Is there a vaccine for patrons who sit in the front row, or sounds like we need those ponchos that you used to get in the front seats <laughs> at Blue Man Group. All or the is maid of say- the mist.
3: I think, you know, I think if your production of Madam Butterfly doesn't have paint splattering the first few rows, you're not doing it right.
1: Listen, it needs to feel like a Gallagher concert. I want watermelon on my face.
2: <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, talk us through your sports headline of
1: the week. Um, I want to give a shout out. I just I feel like every time I come on, I'm shouting out uh, somebody who is the first woman to do X. Hooray. Keep him coming. Uh, this week, it's <laughs> Bianca Smith. Uh, Bianca's going to become the first black woman to coach in the Major League Baseball system. She's wow. going to leave uh, Wisconsin's Carroll University, where she's been, I believe, a hitting coach to coach for the Boston Red Sox minor league teams. And she's going to work with the Sox during spring training. So good job, Bianca Smith.
0: So exciting. Matt Cummings, Distillers, whoops. I would prefer to remain on the good news of Ashley's sports update (laughs) rather than um, what amounted to an epic choke.
2: Weston Williams, the uh, Alabama Crimson on top of Ohio State in the National Championship 21-14 as of this recording. Oliver Camacho, what's your sports take for the week?
4: Well, we're recording on Monday, January 11th. And as we were preparing to record breaking news, uh, Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach, said he will not accept President Trump's Medal of Freedom after last week's storming of the Capitol.
2: Good on you, sir. Hey, uh, Chicago Bears, here's a pro tip. In order to go to the Super Bowl, you need to win a playoff game. (laughs) Ashley, back to you.
1: Um, I would be remiss if I didn't check in with my team. Uh, it's not every week, uh, that we get an attempted coup and insurrection and domestic terrorism. So, uh, how y'all doing?
2: Weston Williams... (laughs) you're just gonna put him on the spot george George. you didn't didn't have a sports thing man so i wanted to make sure you got the first bite at this poisoned apple
3: i mean it's it's uh i mean it's been a rough week i think for um anyone living in the u.s if you're any of our listeners from outside the u.s uh you know think about all of your american friends you know keep them you know give them good vibes it's been uh quite a week for a number of reasons and uh Hopefully, this is the worst of it, but uh, obviously, with the inauguration coming up, there's always potential for more instability. And, uh, you know, we like to think that opera is, you know, uh, an important part of the cultural and political landscape because it is. But at the same time, um, we know that there are things happening sometimes outside the world of opera that are more important. So I would say to all our listeners, particularly in state capitals coming up over the next week, make sure you're staying safe. Uh, just keeping a wary eye and um, not being afraid to call out uh, bad actors when you see them.
2: Matt Cummins hanging in there.
3: Yeah, I'm doing okay. I
0: mean, I'm, I'm pretty furious just that it was allowed to get to this point and I'll, I definitely want to echo everything Weston said and I'll add to it that if your media diet only includes voices who said something like that could never happen. You should search for many of the good writers and academics and historians who have been saying for years that this very well could happen.
2: Oliver, how you feeling?
4: I'm good. I mean, I just want to acknowledge my own implicit bias and say that I'm ready to believe that it was an inside job, and I'm ready to hear all the evidence that there were bad actors, as Wesson said. Uh, that we're supposed to be protecting our lawmakers, and uh, I'm waiting for more evidence to come through for that. But that's really where I'm at right now.
2: And Ashley, how about you? How are you doing?
1: I'm not okay. I'm not. Um, you know, I. So many folks will will try to say that they don't follow politics. Uh, this is not something that we should you know, we should stick to sports, stick to opera, stick to whatever. Um, We're Americans and thus we are affected by this. I feel this a little more deeply, I would imagine, than some of the other average bears uh, because these are the things about which I am passionate. And what we saw last week um, was nothing short of domestic terrorism that was brought on by stochastic terrorism by uh, the occupant of the White House. And Anybody who didn't think this was going to happen has not been paying attention. I could have told you this a long time ago. I'm frankly surprised it took this long. Um, I am scared, splittive uh, that this is the beginning and not the end of something. Uh, for our international listeners, check in on your American friends. We are um, we're dealing with this. It's uh, you're, You'll have to excuse us because uh, we haven't had an insurrection or an attempted coup in our lifetimes. Uh, and some of us are still pretty... Pretty shaken up about it. We may have had friends or loved ones that were lawmakers or journalists uh, in the Capitol or in some of the state capitals that may be affected in the coming weeks. So um, I also am furious, but I'm I'm just, I'm a, I'm a little broken still over the whole thing. Somebody say something funny.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the guy who was wearing the furry hat and the, the big horns, you know, obviously a despicable human being, but kind of wondering what he would be like in a wagner opera all right let's talk some opera
1: Chalk talk on opera box score so corona it's fun right uh, we... <laughs> the light
3: news topic
1: this week. what a what a
3: start <laughs> uh the curtain opens
1: we're just you know we're we're now like you know elbow deep in this pandemic but there are these news of things like vaccines that feel like lights at the end of this impossibly long tunnel and there's all this talk of a return to normalcy we know however that we're probably going to be some of the last of the last to return i mean our art form literally relies on expelling force from a respiratory system um Mm. So what is the next year gonna look like? The next five, are we ever gonna be normal again? Um, there was a really interesting statement that came out from a friend of the show, Zachary James, uh, this week that kind of put a, put a little wake up call on himself and then eventually onto all of us. Uh, Oliver, do you wanna kick off part of that statement for us? Sure.
4: So here's what Zachary said. As we enter the second year of an ongoing global pandemic which has shut down many industries and venues, taken the lives of almost 2 million worldwide and is raging on worse today than it ever has, Let's immediately stop doing business like we are still in the old world. It's a new world with new challenges and more unknowns than knowns. No one knows when we are returning to the stage or when it will be safe in the USA to have live audiences again. Looking at you, opera industry. Love you, but get it together. And artists make a survival plan. Broadway tours aren't returning till earliest 2022. Word out of New York is not to expect 100% normalcy until 2025. Film and TV sets were just shut down again in L.A., and COVID outbreaks on TV sets in New York are wild. I'm a union member of Actors' Equity Association, Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and American Guild of Musical Artists. I have six theater, film, TV commercial agents in New York City, an L.A. manager, and a publicist in Philly, all of whom are very tapped into real info from experts and talking facts, not fantasies. The messaging across entertainment genres is not consistent, Yet it's the same science and math that is at play. I'm going to go with the messaging from the unions and industries that actually consider us employees and provide us with health care and don't make us sign contracts that spell out that if we die on stage, we're a set piece to fall on us. It's not anyone's fault because we are not employees, but independent contractors.
1: He goes on to say... My perspective and priorities have majorly shifted, and despite the challenges and suffering, I'm filled with joy and a sense of freedom because the way it was, the grind of it all, the sacrifices, it was not sustainable and was extremely unhealthy. The whole non-profit art system in the USA is broken. New world, new rules. You are in charge of your own self, artists. Don't jeopardize, don't compromise. Life is too short, and you are way too valuable. I love you all, I really do. Just asking that we collectively get our heads out of the clouds. Real change is needed for there to be an industry to return to. Until then, I'll be in this house making weird stuff from my own heart, collaborating with who I want, and scraping by however I can. Seriously, not playing around with my life this year, and I'm a hundred percent happy about it. Come on in. The water is more than fine. Just keep your distance and wear a mask. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. End of That's segment. That's a lot to
0: take in. <laughs>
3: It's such it's such a great post. I mean, I, I remember I, I saw that because you know uh, we're mutual friends on Facebook. Um, ever since our great interview, by the way, that's that's a great interview to go back to. It's one of our early COVID episodes. Uh, if you're uh, if you are unsure of um, of who he is and, as an artist, really go back podcast owner before
4: we were on Dallas. E-
3: exactly, exactly, uh, but worth worth going back and finding. Uh, and I think he brings up a lot of really, really good points that I have uh, that I've seen, like sort of percolating under the surface to a certain extent, but um, not. Uh, but I think we are here at a point in 2020 where we're seeing the vaccines, we're seeing um, uh, companies starting to talk somewhat realistically about returning to the stage, and I think that we're at a point now where we can really begin to think about. What good can come from this pandemic? Uh, I myself am not an opera singer, uh, but I I do consider myself a theater worker. I've worked as an actor. I've worked backstage doing sound design, uh, some stage management here and there. I've worked front of house at theater companies. I've worked as a uh, an educator for uh, theater companies, and uh and I know many many people in the industry. And there's there was this collective realization at the beginning of the pandemic amongst all of my theater friends who uh, who started you know, going on unemployment. They started collecting um, the, what was at that point, the 600 extra dollars per week. Uh, and they realized that this minimum needed to survive was so, so much more than they had been getting. Uh, and obviously it's not necessarily the same if you're a big star making a lot of money. But it's the reality for the most rank and file theater artists, opera singers, uh, front of house workers. You know the bartenders. You're you're paying. You know at intermissions. You know, um, and that that experience. Everyone I've talked to in theater, that experience has been so universal. That realization of just how bad they have it. I have a, a friend who, who uh, once the six hundred dollars dried up, uh, had to find a job, and she. Um, And she went into, you know, uh, education, you know, preschool education for sort of, you know, taking care of kids, Um, still incredibly low paid. Everyone there was complaining about how low paid Uh, she was making more than she had working professionally at a theater company uh, for the past three or four years. Uh, And and I think that many of the theater people who are leaving the industry now are not leaving because there are no jobs. They're, but they they're realizing the degree to which the idea of working for poverty wages and salaries to mm-hmm. do something that we love, making that sacrifice for something we love, uh, that the idea that that level of poverty, that level of grinding was necessary, was so blatant in the theater community. And I use the word was, I use the past tense, past tense because I hope it is past tense, when theater comes back we can't just assume that the, that the arts are inherently fair, inherently good. We have to make them that way. We have to demand from theater companies, from opera companies that everyone gets the same level of pay uh, or not the same level of pay, but the the ability to survive on their money, the ability to have health care, to demand these things, not just for yourself and for your own little niche in a company, But for everyone who works there, everyone who is greeting audience members to people on stage, people in the orchestra pit, these are the things that we can't let, quote unquote, go back to normal because that is just completely unsustainable. And I hope that realization really is taken to heart by theater artists going forward and not and people just won't be uh, and people won't just be grateful to have a job again.
1: Right, that culture of uh, the love of the game is no longer mm. something that is particularly noble sustainable. or sustainable. Um, Matt Cummings, that's very depressing. Um, uh, we are currently in a where-do-we-go-from-here uh, standpoint. So when you are looking into the future, what what are some things that are that are giving you hope? What are some things that you're looking forward to?
0: So one thing that has basically been the, the brightest ray of hope in a very dark week has been that since the both democratic candidates were successful in georgia we now have a much much better chance than i expected to pass a substantial and substantive covid relief bill uh given that it's the number one priority of the biden administration the number one priority of the senate who just re-won a democratic majority campaigning thereon um and that is the kind of thing that could be a huge game changer and just in terms of what weston was saying like who is able to continue to try to pursue a career in the arts because one other place that we've seen that the old normal really, really didn't work was that the accessibility was so weighted in the favor of those who already had resources, already had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, family wealth or, and connections, and you almost always were white. Uh, and that definitely has not gone away to this point in the pandemic. Uh, and I think that as we're trying to reboot, as much of the art system as is able to come back online in the next five years, that needs to be a real priority. And we have the chance through other structural changes that are potentially God willing on the horizon um, and being worked towards that, that, that might be, we won't have to start pulling at that thread of who is able to afford to keep doing this. Um, Cause it's going to unravel a whole lot of sweaters uh, for artists, not just performing artists, but, but technical artists as well. Uh, throwing money at the at the problem is not going to fix it. It's not going to get rid of COVID. It will make a lot of things better. Um, And as things get better, what I really would hope that companies are able to prioritize is some sort of a communal experience. Because that, I think, is where we have the chance to really get into the mud and start rebuilding something instead of hoping that if we turn it off and turn it on again, like everything will poof be magically better. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And I will, and that can be things like ventilation systems for companies so that they're able to like shorten that long tunnel and start bringing small crowds back when, you know, when things are looking up without having to wait for everything to be totally fixed. Right. I think we should be planning now about how to do outdoor venues when in the spring and summer and, and for future years, I think that we need to work on how to use other venues like museums like and big open spaces that give us the chance to really dive into educational work and to build audiences, build art opera lovers, not just through, like, paying attention to them now, but by continuing to pay attention to them again and again so that that's the difference between lip, lip service and investment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, George Cedarquist. Coach, let's talk brass tacks.
2: The brass tacks. Okay. So one of the finest soccer players in the Italian leagues is a guy called Mario Balotelli. And Balotelli is famous for never celebrating after he scores a goal. Most soccer players, they're doing flips and doing all this crazy stuff. He never (laughs) celebrates. And when asked why, he says, hey, look, does the postman celebrate when he delivers a letter no, that's his job. My job is to score goals. That's why I don't celebrate. Here's the thing. Being in the arts, this is a job, all right? And there never was a normal. The normal pre-pandemic was exhaustion, was separation from families, if you have them, from people that you love. The normal was being paid in highlight reels and rules, okay?
0: And exposure.
2: Now here's the thing, the pandemic, we're going to get the the Sharpie out. The pandemic (laughs) is our chance to change this system for the better, but you got to show up. You got to play the long game. You got to roll right, call that audible, pass on the inside, hit up the middle singles, pivot, you know, stay the course. Bo Schembechler, one of the finest Michigan football coaches that ever there was from the sixties through to the eighties. Bo Schembechler, here's his phrase. Those who stay will be champions. Those are words to live by.
1: Oliver, it's not lost on me that you finished your wine during that last, uh, <laughs> that last statement.
4: You know, earlier today, I was listening to NPR, and you probably can find this by just like Googling uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, All Things Considered, the show I heard it on. In France, they have, uh, if you can prove that you earned so much money as an artist every year, you work this many hours, you have social security as an artist, uh, and they try to pay you mm-hmm. right now. They're writing laws right now to make sure that artists will make it through the pandemic. Um, and uh, I mean, that's how far are we, are we away from that in the U.S.? You know, mm-hmm. uh, what we do, like like George just said, what we do is a job. You know, and like what Weston said, like we also are contributing to the economies of so many other people in the service industry, not just and behind the scenes and administratively all et cetera. It's all work and it's all valid. So
0: And the hotels that people pay for to come see shows and the restaurants yeah, that people go after. Like the arts absolutely. are a huge economic driver. And that is sometimes neat. when I
4: when I go to the opera, I just drop money in the lobby because I'm so grateful to be there. Just like twenties, twenties. <laughs>
1: You do it like this, Oliver. You do it like this. <laughs> okay. Well Clearly we've solved all the world's problems today. <laughs> we've learned how to distribute money appropriately when the <laughs> opera houses reopen. Uh, if and when the opera houses reopen, if and when we have a republic in the next seven to ten days. Uh, we were guardedly optimistic and uh, we're gonna we're gonna take the lemons we've I... been given and make some operatic lemonade.
4: I don't want to extend this too much longer but i just want to ask you all zachary is suggesting that we really take a look at how to create art in a in the new post-pandemic and current pandemic era how do we feel about that though like do we want to go back to the old ways and like get back in the theater or like matt said and like zachary suggesting should we really be investigating alternative ways of doing this because I don't know if if it's reaching the same audiences it might reach new audiences which is something else you know well
3: I I think that you know having and there's nothing wrong with an opera house despite what Pierre Boulez said about blowing them up but there was there is something to be said for you know I feel like when you start to get overly concerned with maintaining some kind of normal that's when you wind up with old audiences you know dying audiences um audiences who uh who are afraid sometimes of seeing things beyond the old war horses and nothing wrong with the old war horses but uh the the future of opera is the future um and so we can't we can't just try to preserve things that were uh that were you know exploiting the workers who who, who were you know who were creating those things and I I I don't think that this is a matter of literally saying oh we have to change everything no more opera houses ever the Met canceled the lyric canceled well maybe cancel the Met but uh but like <laughs> but there are other avenues there are other areas I mean. Uh, it's always so exciting when you like go through music history and you see the introduction of a new instrument that had never existed before, and how that changes music. Beethoven's pianistic writings uh, being translated into into symphonies, uh, um, which leads into greater chromatic colors, which leads to Wagner, which leads to Schoenberg, which leads to you know all sorts of things. Uh, we can't think of opera as being static, old, something to preserve. I think that the pandemic has made us realize that there is something living and breathing there that has to be nurtured and has to be helped along. And we can do that if we really try and commit and don't take no for an answer.
4: Pierre Boulez's Twitter account has been suspended.
1: (laughs) Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
2: Thanks, Zachary James, for a fantastic Post that is getting us thinking, a, that a credo. Is getting us talking. Credo. Uh, the national championship. We're just going to check in on that. Alabama thirty-five, Ohio State seventeen. Ooh, that makes this Michigan fan very happy, and probably Weston as well, mm-hmm,
3: being the, mm-hmm. the
0: roll yes. time. Oh, Can you tell ah. how how personally happy he is about this development? i I'm how also, deeply invested.
2: I, I'm super happy because the NHL season is back. It starts Wednesday. Got the uh, what? Well, here we go. Got the, got the Wings <laughs> merch on. I, I just I just love hockey. Wait till my good call at the end of the show, how much I love hockey and, and skating. Um, of course, the NHL is in four different aligned divisions now, kind of like on these sort of uh, lines of latitude so that the teams, when they travel, don't have to sort of cross the country. So this means that the Red Wings, my beloved... Red Wings and my, the hated Blackhawks are again in the Central Division, so they'll be able to play a lot and fight.
1: Do you want to have a fun little fun little nugget there? Uh, the fight song for the Blackhawks is a super, super jazzy diddy uh, called Here Come the Hawks, and it was written by uh, Dick Marks and his orchestra, who was the father of pop sensation Richard Marks. There you go.
3: Everybody. Oh, wow. Do, 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 not that do, one. Do, that, do, do, that, that. You're not that <laughs> one. <laughs> this segment is a disaster. What are we listening to next?
2: <laughs> All right. 1,400 audio tracks, 1,300 video files, 60 performers, five episodes. Those are just some of the stats behind Orfeo Remote, a mini series version of Monteverdi's opera of the same name. Oliver and I sat down, and we didn't look back, talking to Joachim Schomberger, director of opera at Northwestern University's Bean School of Music. Schomberger, in collaboration with conductor Stephen Altopp, created the complex idea and execution of this truly innovative approach to opera and filmmaking during the pandemic. First episode drops on YouTube Friday, January 15. But we started with exactly how at the beginning of this pandemic, the project got off the ground.
5: Yeah. In the spring of 2019, when we were all of a sudden forced to go remote with, I guess the world, but for us in our case with Northwestern, the opera program and the music program at Northwestern, we had actually at that point planned to do a staged version for the spring quarter project of Monteverdi's Orfeo and, um, When we thought, well, obviously, that would need to be cancelled, I thought, well, maybe there's something we could do. And I thought some kind of film project. I talked to my colleague, Stephen Altub, and he didn't take very long to just say, like, let's do it. And we weren't necessarily really clear at this point what we would get ourselves into um especially with the scope of the whole project recording and producing and filming a complete opera um but well we did it and (laughs) there you go orfeo remote was born so i think this
4: is the the part that is mind-blowing for people who may not understand what the project is yet because they haven't seen it but um i was at the um kind of lecture you did uh, online over the summer describing the process and I tried to tell the podcast listeners what I saw but I know you do a much better job of it can you actually describe what the process was of putting this together and all the individual parts
5: yeah so out of the idea of making a film we thought um well maybe you let's put this into some kind of mini series rather than one longer film because uh, let's be honest to watch a uh, 2 hour Baroque opera experimental film that seems a little overwhelming. <laughs> um, so
2: most people don't want to do that live in a the theater.
5: <laughs> maybe, yeah, sadly. Um, but um, so exactly. So we, we thought, well, let's maybe break this down and, and find a format that is a little more suitable for modern audiences. And well, with Netflix and all this format of miniseries, um, we thought we'll, we'll break it down into a digestible um format well but how do you how do you do this we had a few challenges one was really the fact that we didn't have any preparation time because it was the shutdown happened so quickly and it's not that we planned a movie project down the road and then at some point we're ready to do it and did it No, we had to like kind of come up on the spot how are we going to turn now this project into a movie project where and this is really something to stress where every particip- participant was in a different location, was remote; hence, also the name that a little later was born, Orfeo Remote. Every participant, not two musicians, not two singers, were in the same place for any of this. Um, and uh, we actually, in the in the credits at the end of each episode, we have a little list where we see where people filmed and produced and in many, many states over the all over the country. One of the musicians was in Korea, even. Um, Yeah, so the process started by um, zoom meetings, and then by musical coachings that Professor also did with the singers did with the musicians. And in the meantime, I started discussing with singers, uh, the roles, the situations then we started being more specific about locations where people could film. We had to discuss how people would get their costumes because that had to also happen in some kind of homemade fashion. And then we discussed further screen directions, who these characters, how in in what directions and angles they would be to each other and uh, How they would film it technically so I could later on, even in some instances, some put them into the same frame. Um, So in a way, really, the big challenge was like to turn all participants into home, like have them create their little home recording studio. um, And make make them become filmmakers for for filming themselves or with their family members or whoever they were sheltered with um, that was really an an incredible undertaking technically i mean it's it's been really it's really hard to describe because there's so many so many steps to the process professor althoff started recording the entire opera on the harpsichord sent we broke it down into smaller sections send it out to the characters, each their parts, they then rehearsed with that. And Professor Alto musically, dramatically with me. And then they um, recorded just their vocal lines and uploaded this back to a big box file system, which contains now, I think, up to like probably about with everything up to like 3000 files. Um, It was like just, I think, 1,200 audio files that went back and forth. So they recorded their solo voice. I think that's what we call it, vocal solo lines, something Mm -hmm. like this. Professor Alto then re-recorded an accompaniment under that. The idea was also like that they wouldn't just sing to his pre-recorded first line because that would kind of force the singers within the structure of his first recording Mm -hmm. and don't give them any freedom for cadences for endings for mm. So they kind of use this first one to record over it and take their, their liberty, especially towards end of phrases, put this recording back and Professor Altop recorded a new accompaniment of harpsichord below that. Mm-hmm. That file was called the lip sync file that was sent back to all the singers. And that's what they used to lip sync along as they filmed on their cell phones. In the meantime, while while they did that, and we worked on the film part, Professor Altop recorded all the other instruments and added them then eventually to this lip sync file or replaced in some instances, the harpsichord with the Orbo. But we knew at this point that all the lip sync because the, the vocal line would be the one of the final project. So we knew if they used that file, they would be ultimately, I would be able to sync them up in the final project. Hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah. Oh my God.
4: I mean, just to be very, very explicit, each person made a video of themselves with their phones or with whatever they had available to them. So you are dealing with all of these files. And thank goodness, there aren't a lot of like duet ensemble things, but there are a lot of choruses in this opera. So you're the video editor for this, I imagine. Um, I how do you instruct um, artists, singers who maybe don't even have that much stage experience let alone camera work experience into creating your vision and you know, the, the scenery and like, the distance from the camera, from their, from their face and the affect, you know, their gesture, their movement How do you direct that? Like by email?
3: (laughs) No,
5: this was all done done through Zoom meetings, just the way we're talking right now. It was in Zoom meetings, and we um, discussed screen directions. Mm -hmm. We would say, okay, Orfeo, um, in the first scene, uh, Eurydice is to your right. sitting. You're sitting on the floor. She's sitting on the floor. She's Mm -hmm. to your right, right? the first shepherd is standing behind you. So when you ever refer and look Mm. up to him, you can look up to, you know, like, with a few scenes. And at the beginning, I was kind of like, I thought, well, maybe we can actually storyboard this all out. But Mm. I very quickly realized, it's impossible in time to do this in the time that we had. So for a few scenes, and for the first scene, for example, and for two more, we I created actual storyboards so where that i would send to people and explain exactly bar five uh you refer to this you react to this word and this would be the frame you need to frame yourself in um and then with more and more gaining understanding on on everybody's side like about framing about different shot types um we were able to i was able to give them a little more freedom um and especially, I have to say, our main character, um, Nick Lynn, the Orfeo, he with his brother Graham, they did a fantastic job. Then really taking this, especially in the scenes where where he's alone in, where we discussed mm. something, well, maybe you can do some forest footage walking like they did wonderful shots and really experimented on their own with like angles and have, they got in with very interesting, um, we got very, very interesting shots that, that was a blast to edit together.
2: Well, the, the first episode comes out on Friday, January 15. Uh, is the last episode edited at this point?
5: <laughs> it is. However, it is only finished with something I haven't even mentioned yet. We have two casts for this. So <laughs> it, w- not, it wasn't enough crazy like to do this in one version. We always at Northwestern try with our productions to give as many students as possible a performance opportunity So we had most of these roles, basically all of these roles double cast. So we're talking with this kind of show about like 40 singers, um, 20 in the chorus, almost 20 soloists, even if some of them have a few lines and smaller parts, um, but they were all basically double cast. So we are now we, ha- we will have two uh, mini series basically we call it a, a, the blue cast and the green cast and when we say we release the first episodes, we will really release two versions of that episode. With two different cast, at least in most roles, so when you ask, yeah, are they finished No, with well, one cast is finished right now, and the other cast is well, the first episode is done at this point, and the second one is like, so I will I will catch up with. With both casts of, towards the time it's released, so, and then
4: drink a bottle of champagne
5: when it's all over on February. There, there have been a few along the way already. <laughs> Maybe not champagne. Yeah, that way we'll wait with that to the very end.
2: So you you have survived this this process, uh, Joachim. As you look around at other opera conservatories, professional opera companies, large and small, I mean. Do you see this new way of, of creating opera having legs in the future at the academic level and at the professional level?
5: I I do. I mean, just as your question, I think you're right to really make a distinction between professional opera companies and the conservatory just because you really have a different mission. I see this kind of film versions of of operas very, as a very interesting addition to for opera companies, even when we hopefully soon go back to live performances, um, that that wouldn't replace that in any way or form, but could really be an interesting addition to producing opera. And for conservatories, y- yes, it's, a, it's, as I just said, like the, the challenge for me to do, do anything like this again is really the plain scope of things to offer um, this to many students as possible so since really like our mission is yes we perform obviously but the performance is in the first place geared towards uh young performers um getting experience and as many as of, of them as possible of in in our of our students so um yes so i think it's definitely something that's that's possible to to do um and i actually think um, and have in, in in mind to in the future after after we will be go back and we'll be able to have in um, in person experiences and rehearse in a regular way that we will still at some point maybe create an actual opera film but one that wouldn't be produced remotely one where we can actually shoot at a location altogether and so I could see that as a very interesting project uh, to do after, after Corona.
4: Hmm. Have you seen, I mean, we have a couple more questions that we had planned, but just based on this, your last response, I know you've been busy with uh, Orfei Remote, but uh, during this time of everybody pivoting, have you seen something out there that you're like, oh, that was a good idea. I never thought of it that way, you know, because there are some companies that are trying to create new, content i know one of the first one off the bat was i think houston grand opera's young artist program they did that uh marriage of figaro finale almost the same way you're doing it but it was edited yeah. together and i was I thought it was very clever but i think also in uh opera oldenburg there was a uh, orfeo and eurydice the gluck uh were I think they did it in front of green screens and there are there's not so much in the cast, like the Monteverde is like three people in that cast, so much easier. But is there something like that that you saw that maybe gave you an idea it's like, oh, that would, be, would have been an interesting thing for us to try?
5: I mean, as you said, there's, there's so much, I mean, so many people were so creative or forced mm-hmm. to be so creative mm-hmm. in, in this situation that in many interesting interesting projects. And I mean, to be honest, at some point, it's, it's almost become overwhelming that you felt like, okay, I'm here's another another music project of some kind. And what I was so excited about our project was really, I wanted to go beyond the idea of a split screen and showing all performers perform. That is wonderful. But it's in a way a, a video version of a concert in some kind. So you Mm. see all the performers and it's beautiful, but it's not necessarily dramatically so interesting. So really taking it to a level, and our big goal was like to create uh, a movie that you can enjoy just as a movie and where you really forget that it's produced remotely and where you don't think about it and where maybe after a f- few minutes where you feel like oh yeah they, they, they were all remote they, Do you really don't think about it at all anymore and really enjoy it for the story that it is and um, yeah so th- there's many many beautiful projects I wouldn't even know like now how to single any any any, any particular out as where really people were wonderfully creative and um, it's beautiful.
4: I think you answered a question that we had uh, that we were about to ask you. Is like what makes what makes something successful? And I think you said it. You said if, if you feel like the story has been told, that's that's the measure of success.
5: In in a way, that's that's for me always the measure of success. Also, when I go to the theater, like am I able to forget that it's theater? That like can I can I draw people in enough that I don't care that how it's done? Mm-hmm. Ideally the form shouldn't draw attention to itself well in our case actually it's it's interesting that we actually um have a story created around the actual story which does draw um a little attention to how it's done or actually tells in an indirect way the story of ourselves producing it because we have this character of la musica which is in the original monteverdi the 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 embodiment of music, who at the very beginning greets the audience. So this character in our version is a young unemployed musician. We see her go actually Northwestern student in our story. We see her go to school. Unemployed student (laughs) Yeah, one that can't like as all artists is in the same horrible position as we all still are, and isn't able to perform and isn't able to do anything. So she she we see her go to this school and the school is closed and she goes home with her mask on and reads on her computer uh, that everything is closed Met season is closed chicago lyric is closed the whole world is closed and we see her get this idea and then we see her call up her friends and create a youtube channel and create a project and uh, as she says in the original a story now I'm going to tell you of Orfeo that's one of the lines she has in this opening sequence and that's what she does with the help of her friends just what we did and then she produces a mini series on YouTube just the way we we did it in real life um so there's something really what I really love about the project that it's not only were we able to um create something in a time where basically nothing was possible but we also tell that very story of ourselves and of everybody almost in real time just at the moment when we were forced to, to be creative. We show somebody who was forced to be creative and and does what we did. So it, it'll be it's moving to me that it's been like a almost like a historical in time capsule of that moment mm-hmm. in, in, in history. Mm-hmm. So that's something I find I find meaningful.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, and all good art, I think, is is able to do that. Eventually, we're going to get back into the rehearsal room. We're going to get audiences back into opera houses. How are you going to view that experience in a different light? What, what new understanding might you bring to the art form based on your experience of this time as a human being and this experience as an artist making Orfea Remote?
5: There's many, that's such, it's such a deep question because truth is I, I don't really know yet. I can at this point only imagine just even how it will feel to rehearse with people in person and to be back in a room and and going into a real opera rehearsal or theater rehearsal or like working really with people. It, on one level I'm concerned just how this will be and how our um, perception will have changed and our um natural way to interact with each other um but on the other end i i i'm sure like many many people in the art so most of us we were craving it so um i i i can't wait for that moment and I think that we will definitely will have um, gained some appreciation just for the fact, something we've taken so much for granted in, in many parts of life, but uh, for us as as artists in in what we do. Um, so that's something that I really, really look forward to and still not quite sure if I can truly imagine how it's going to be. Hmm. Well, a few minutes ago,
4: you talked about La Musica and this beautiful idea of having to start over under a new circumstance and the opera Orfeo or the subject matter Orfeo seems to be that subject matter that is always at the beginning of a movement. So I mean I hope in some ways that this will be a time capsule and not the way we go forward but if it is a way we go forward I think we will have lots to learn from what you did and you might have to write uh, the book about how this came together and um, you know all the techniques that you used because it, it is really incredible. And I'm so looking forward uh, to watching this. I know George is too, and we're hopefully our, our audiences out there will will tune in.
2: Wait, writing we- a book, he's going to make a movie about how he made <laughs> Romero It's remote. so
5: true. We, George, you're so right. We, we had like, obviously we have thought at some point we should do a making of, <laughs> and if, if it wasn't like the whole thing so crazy leave such, such a crazy large project, we would have already started this. So, and it may happen if if once it's out and once we have a little space around it, we may come back and put a little bit together more information. But that's also why I like it that a little bit. It's built into this frame story of La Musica. We actually see her sitting at her computer and we see a screenshot of um, her in Final Cut, which is an actual screenshot of the actual project. We see a <laughs> screenshot of, of Logic Pro, which is an actual, scre- actual screenshot of what Professor Altop was, was mixing. And we see a little um, kind of b footage of people filming themselves. So at least in a suggested way, it's part of the project itself that tells its story how it's, how it's been done.
4: First episode comes out this Friday if you're listening on January 13th. That's January 15th and the first episode is called The Hippie Wedding and we will give you all the instructions. Joaquin, we want to have you on again to talk about your other projects. I mean we saw Dog Days and we loved it so much and we know that you're doing stuff outside of Northwestern but uh, we definitely want to make sure we gave this topic focus. So will you come back when we invite you back when things are more normal in your life? <laughs>
5: Oh, yes, I would love to come back. And thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's been been fun.
0: This just in, the
3: two-minute drill.
2: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week
3: infectious disease expert dr anthony fauci said that he thinks theaters and other live entertainment venues could reopen quote sometime in the fall of 2021 during a conference held by the association of performing arts professionals dr fauci emphasized that this is dependent upon the u.s vaccinating at least 70 percent of the population if everything goes right by the time it gets to early to mid-fall you can have a little vote sec as a treat
4: Florida Grand Opera, on the other hand, isn't waiting around for the fall. Between January and March, the company plans to produce four operas for a total of eight in-person but socially distanced performances. I want people to remember things are going back to normal at some point, even if normal will look different, says Susan Dennis, Florida Grand Opera director and CEO, about the company's upcoming season of specials and shorts. Jake Heggie's Three Decembers will kick off the season on January 30th.
0: Originally set for January 31st, the Grammy Awards ceremony has been postponed until March 14th. In a statement, producers said, The deteriorating COVID situation in Los Angeles, with hospital services being overwhelmed, ICUs having reached capacity, and new guidance from state and local governments, have all led us to conclude that postponing our show was the right thing to do.
1: Opera for Peace has announced the creation of Opera for Peace Academy Middle East and North Africa. The project will celebrate Arabic opera, train future artists, and incentivize cultural exchange to promote Arabic culture and art. They also have plans for a second project in Africa later in 2021.
2: Opera America has announced the inaugural participants of their new IDEA or Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access opera residencies program. Composers Laura Hobina-Costa, Tamar Kali-Brown, and librettist J. May Barrizo will each receive a full year residency and $22,000 in grants for career development. Tulsa
3: 1921 by Adolphus Hale Stork will receive its world premiere next month. The narrative work for Mezzo Soprano and String Ensemble is based on the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, when mobs attacked black, re- black residents and businesses in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. YouTube will be the platform for a live stream premiere starring Janae Bridges and the Harlem Chamber Players in February.
4: A court has ruled in favor of opera singer Julia Kogan to give The Soprano a co-writing credit for the film Florence Foster Jenkins. The case was launched in 2015 when Kogan claimed to have been snubbed in the credits after the end of a romantic relationship with the film's credited writer, Nicholas Martin. In addition to financial compensation, the verdict asserts that Kogan authored at least 20% of the screenplay.
0: The Professional Association of Classical Singers in Iceland, or Klasis, has issued a declaration of no confidence in the management of Icelandic opera. The declaration comes days after a court overturned a lawsuit by the soprano Thora Einar's daughter, who claimed that she and many of her colleagues had been underpaid. The company argues that it had no obligation to pay singers, according to union rates, since they were hired as contractors.
4: In a blow to journalistic coverage of the fine arts in the Chicago area, longtime music critic for the Chicago Tribune, Howard Reich, has taken the latest of the company's cyclical buyout offers. Reich retires after four decades or covering music and the arts for the Chicago Tribune, the third music critic the paper has lost in four years.
1: Exit stage right. Tamara Sorokina has died at the age of 89. From 1954 to 1982, the Russian soprano was a soloist at the Bolshoi Theater, performing the lead soprano roles in Eugene Onegin, Iolanta, La Boheme, Madame Butterfly, La Traviata, and The Tsar's Bride.
2: Serbian mezzo-soprano Bezerka Tsević has died at the age of 97. Best known for her carmen, Tsević performed over 70 roles in her career, including the quartet of verity mezzo anti-heroines, Aboli, Amneris, Ulrika, and Azucena, plus Charlotte and Dalila. In later years, she taught in Belgrade, where baritone Jelko Lukic was one of her students. Nailed it! No, you didn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and on this day, January 11th, in 1754, it was the first performance of the second version of Jean Philippe Rameau's opera Castor et Pollux in Paris. That one's for Oliver.
2: Thank in you.
0: 1820, it was the birth of Russian composer Alexander Nikolaevich Serov in St. Petersburg. In 1893, Italian based Tancredi Passero was born in Torino. In 1906, we had the first performance of Rachmaninoff's two one act operas, those operas being The Miserly Knight and Francesca da Rimini. They premiered in Moscow. In ni- 1931, the American conductor and founder of the Opera Orchestra of New York, Eve quayler, quayler was born. She founded the Opera Orchestra of New York in 1971 after having worked on the staff of the Metropolitan and New York City operas. In 1934, happy birthday to German-born American soprano Lotte Lehmann. Uh, in 1976, we had the first performance of Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures in New York. And closing with one for Weston, in 1997, we had the first performance of Hans van Hense's opera Venus and Adonis by the Bavarian State Opera. And
2: that's your two-minute drill.
4: That was Tancredi Pazero singing Ella Jamai Mamo from Don Carlo. And we have a quick retraction right off the bat. Um, <laughs> L- Lottie Lehman was uh, not born this day in 1934, but she did make her debut at the Met on this day. It's like being born Well, well the tra- in tra- <laughs> New York City specifically. <laughs> the
0: traditional congratulations of which I believe is happy birthday <laughs> <laughs> to an American career. <laughs> nice cover
2: nice cover Cummings I like it Ashley uh Dr. Fauci and Florida Grand Opera something's gotta give
1: uh yeah was anybody else surprised to hear about Anthony's uh our sweet sweet baby Dr. Fauci's announcement over the weekend um I I, I, I will listen I will do anything that Dr. Fauci tells me to literally anything. <laughs> I, we stand we stand Dr. Fauci. Um, but I was shocked to hear his timeline. It was uh it was very surprising. Also because he's like, Oh well, for this to happen, seventy percent of the population minimum has to get vaccinated by the fall.
3: That, that seems like, a little a little optimistic given the, the, the thing. <laughs> the and, the, the and everything. The, and I've I've seen those
0: kind of estimates from even before vaccines were approved it was like if there's a vaccine maybe by the fourth quarter of 2021 we'll be back in theaters and the fact that um the rollout so far which has been less than stellar i think we can all agree (laughs) Mm -hmm. um hasn't really made them significantly revise those those kinds of predictions i think that the weeks after january 20th are going to be really telling to know for anyone to know like you know how realistic is this really with people in charge who are trying to do the work
4: those doctors keep opening up the refrigerators and seeing the expired date on those. Oh, we'll get to it next week. You know, it's like with your yogurt in the fridge.
2: You know?
3: <laughs> well, and then, this I'm fridge will be this. cleaned out weekly. <laughs> <Yes>. uh... <laughs> I, I mean, I think, you know, we're all kind of shocked about how, how optimistic Fauci is being. Meanwhile, Florida Grand Opera is just on its own, like, a different if, level.
0: In Florida, where they've had no restrictions on COVID since, like, July.
3: I mean, I I don't like I mean, at this point, I'm like I'm almost like, you know, if if they do open, uh, if they do do these shows as they intend, are is anyone going to come to them? Like I would I wouldn't touch it with a six foot socially distanced pole. And I know they are, you know, doing the social distancing. They're they're moving to a smaller venue that's uh, not as big. uh, And I understand, you know, losing money is very hard because the people who will go,
4: you're it
3: pieces too, which yeah. else, they're draw,
4: not draw the, to do. Like- draw the Venn diagram of people who are anti-vaxxers, who don't believe in COVID
3: and who like Jake Heggie. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's a wild <laughs> diagram we've created here. Hey, Clay,
1: uh, hey, you want to go see three Decembers? Here, it's lit. Let's go. Get in the truck. Let's go. It,
3: it, it really is. It, it, I mean, obviously, you know, this this uh, it's a wild thing that they're doing. I don't know all the details of how they're trying to keep audiences safe. But my instinct says it's not safe. And I would not recommend any of my Florida friends going to the opera until Dr. Fauci says it's okay.
2: Matt, would you uh recommend folks uh tune into the live stream of Tulsa 1921?
0: I I know that I'm gonna be tuning into the live stream oh, yeah. of Tulsa yeah. 1921. And between that and this Opera for Peace initiative, I think that we have a really good chance to continue down this road of lifting up voices that have not really been well represented by the operatic community, whether they be African-American women, African-Americans in general, but especially African-American and also women in general. So especially (laughs) (laughs) African-American women. Um, And also there is just a, there's a long history of racism toward North Africa and the Middle East and operatic operas of the canon. And so having the chance to produce a, a work from that area of the world with that culture that's actually representing the culture instead of like old fashioned Austrian and Italian opinions of that culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you
4: saying Italian grown in Algiers is racist?
0: Uh. I would never. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least abduction from the Soraleo has the twist where the Europeans were backwards. all along. (laughs) (laughs) But Um, just the chance of even producing music that's for wider uh, consumption that's in Arabic. Right. Me- will mean a lot to address these kind of stereotypes and ideas that have been ingrained in Western consciousness for centuries.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Oliver. By the way,
4: I stand Adolphus Hale Stork. Awesome composer. <laughs> yeah, by do, the way.
0: Do, do, you,
2: do you stand um, Opera America, Oliver?
4: You know, we've been seeing these initiatives like we talked about with Opera Theater St. Louis, where they're, they created a fellowship for. You know, administrators of color, and now this uh, new residency program with Opera America for composers and librettists, assumingly of color or that fit their diversity mm. uh, check, checklist. And they're giving them twenty-two thousand dollars for career development each. Where's our twenty-two thousand dollars, man? We've been, <laughs> we've been, we've been talking to about to do this. and like we brought on a, we brought on a girl to be on our panel. And like I'm <laughs> and I check off at least four boxes yeah. on that diversity checklist. So
1: old token Hargrave over here yeah. being the I think, loud mouth. I mean I we think did the... we did
4: talk about hockey a lot in this episode, so we're probably going backwards, but yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. I was gonna say the, the whiteness and uh, and maleness of the remaining uh, cast members might it's overwhelming. be overwhelming. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's not great. Yeah, those, those but ra- George has
4: red hair, so that's gotta come. I am
2: for yeah, so, those ratings are gonna blow up in Canada this week. Weston I'll say there's problems with opera in Iceland. Is nothing sacred anymore?
3: Is nothing sacred? Well, I thought this was an interesting story because uh, one thing that we didn't because mention, Matthew
4: pronounced the names so well. That's yeah, actually, that was amazing. Uh, I,
3: and and, all, and you know, after uh, George was so proud of butchering all the Czech names, uh, I I think that it was. Uh, it it was an interesting story because obviously it ties in very much with what we were talking about in our segment, talking about, uh, uh, um, Zach's, uh, um, um, you know, call to, to action, but it's in very sharp relief here, I think in Iceland, because this is the Icelandic opera. It is the only professional opera company in London, uh, in London and Iceland. I don't know why I said London, uh, and ice London, uh, And this is, uh, and this is an interesting case because obviously, um, obviously, you know, this is a an age-old problem where you know, uh, singers, actors, theater artists don't get paid union wages because they're hired as as contractors, Um, and you know, we see this happening all the time. I can't speak to whether or not you know a contract was signed to the contrary, making them that. I, I should note that even though the court found. In the favor of uh, of the Icelandic opera, they did actually, um, uh they didn't make uh, the soprano pay the legal fees. So there's a, a certain strangeness there, which could just be a quirk of the Icelandic system, but um, but the fact that this is the only company that, and and the and and there was a need to call for a vote of you know no confidence in this only company. It really goes to show how. How important it is to not let big uh, companies, even in places where we have many companies like the Met, for example, which immediately popped into mind, um, like the Met, who has this huge clout in the U.S., or the Atlantic Opera, which has the only clout in Iceland, to let them walk over their artists and their performers and their workers and to uh, and to just say well you know it's just one company it it really does have to be something we are keeping track of across all countries across all uh all levels of professionalism from you know storefront to big companies because I mean, if we not, don't even...
0: It's not even just arts. Like, this reminded me of what's going yeah. on in California with Uber and their oh, yeah, their sure. new law to reclassify all of those employees as contractors so that they don't have to mm-hmm. get the benefits. Like, it, yep. the consequences of this could be even worse in America where we have, like, not even as good labor protections as they do in most of Europe.
3: And and it's, it really is something that we have to uh, really push for. Like, this, this is not just something – that we can vote for. This is something we have to, you know, engage with on a local level, uh, with specific companies, uh, with unions, with uh, protests, with you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, strikes. You know, these are things that that have really we can't just expect it to go away. Because when countries or companies that have this kind of clout do this kind of thing, it becomes more and more okay for the smaller companies the new companies the um the uh to say well if the met can get away with it if the icelandic opera can get away with it why not us you know and that's something we have to hold uh, them accountable for
4: i think those the, that was the first time those words were ever said in the same sentence if the met re- can get away with it, <laughs> I icelandic...
1: <laughs> did it i finally did it <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make a Bjork joke in there somewhere, but I couldn't find I the right time. It was on like, <laughs> social. Double I Dutch know about Iceland.
4: No, we know about <laughs> Benedict Christianson, our guest from yeah St. John
3: episode. That's and the fair. other thing I know about Iceland is that London is definitely in it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, <laughs> and that volcano that like messed up European air traffic. Like, oh, I forgot about ago, that. Right. Simpler
3: yeah. times. Crazy name too.
2: All right, let's wrap this show up.
1: Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score.
2: All right, time to wrap the show up. Good call, bad call. What do you got, Weston?
3: Wait, you're actually letting me say one? <laughs> oh, at long last! Oh. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, don't blow it, Before man. Before you take it back, the ninth annual Prototype Festival opened this past week on January 8th and will continue releasing cutting-edge music through the 16th. Uh, and will uh, those will be available variously across the, uh, the, the next month or so. The annual festival featuring avant-garde works of opera and theater includes two further world premieres and three additional U.S. premieres of Multimedia Works. Founding director Beth Morrison remains hopeful that the works that were previously scheduled for 2021 We'll be able to go for in 2022, but for now, I mean Prototype Festival is really doing some of that cutting-edge opera that you don't get anywhere else, and I'm so excited to be tuning in all through the rest of this week.
0: Matt Cummings. Okay, so I don't know. What, I don't know if you saw this announcement today, but there is Amazon is doing a um, an Aaron Sorkin biopic about Lucy no. and Ricky. No. Starring Javier Bardem and apparently the American accent of Nicole Kidman, who is indelibly linked to opera ever since her portrayal of Satine, a.k.a. Violetta. in Uh, (laughs) Um, Somebody needs
1: to call. Was Deborah Messing busy? Why did they do that?
0: I don't know. Like, I can't think of a worse pairing of celebrity (laughs) and person to play them than Lucy, Lucille Ball and Nicole Kidman.
1: (laughs) It's like, there will be blood, the half hour comedy special. Like that's what it's gonna be.
2: (laughs) Okay, so that was Matt's bad call. Ashley, what's your good call?
1: Um, yes, uh, Matthew Anchell, who is a uh, bear princess on Instagram and quote, your TikTok gay best friend. Uh, he's, first of all, he's so much fun. He's so great to like hang out with and watch on the Instagrams and the social needs. But he's also a really, really talented singer, a very good bass, uh, and runs in a lot of the operatic circles that I have like a couple of degrees of Kevin Bacon to. So I am on a quest to become Matthew Anchell's friend in real life.
2: Oliver Camacho
4: i know i'm like the least skilled person on this entire panel but somehow uh, i got a, a legacy slot at wfmt uh, at 4:30 on saturdays uh, for the past like 40 plus years there's always been uh, a host announcing vocal music programming vocal music and talking about it and they've given that privilege to me so if you know how to go to wfmt.com or if you live in chicago you turn on your radio Uh, 4.30s on Saturdays. You'll hear me talking about singing. (laughs) I'll be stealing all of your content.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. dot lcom on Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score right into the listener mailbag at operaboxscore@gmail.com. gmail.com. Podcast version of our show available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score. It would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Joachim Schamberger. Your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you pass the remote. We're back with an all-new show next week. Special guest, Will Liverman. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more embarrassing productions of Das Eingold in the Rotunda. Join us.